Welcome back to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRAR. I'm Alex Gehring. And I'm Bobby Howe. Bobby, how are you today? I'm doing okay. Doing okay. Good. Good. You know, um, very saddened by the past passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, it hit me like a gut punch. It was, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the timing of this episode, you know, we're recording this Monday, it's being released on Wednesday. So I feel like that timing is actually working so that we can have that conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. It's incredible, you know, and and this is true, no matter what your political affiliations are, you can look at her life and and everything that occurred, um, everything that she's been through um and and just have a ton of respect uh, yeah, yeah. for the life she led and for the way that she served uh, her country and um so i think that um I, I, like i say i i've seen people of of all uh beliefs uh express that that sentiment and which was you know considering how divided uh, we all seem to be sometimes uh, yeah. in in this day and age. Um, it was really encouraging to me to see uh, how much people respected this woman. I loved reading the stories uh, here uh, over the weekend about her and uh, Justice Scalia and mm-hmm. their friendship and um, the way that um, hopefully they can model uh, a more uh, cohesive unit um for all of us to emulate as a society i just i I really have so much respect for for her well and it's like you talked about bringing all sides together i mean there's still some people that are out there and you know they're saying their thing there's always those people that are going to be out there and do their thing and you know but you know one of the people within our real estate industry and he's actually mentioned our podcast in one of his blogs is rob hahn and probably by me mentioning his name right now, it's going to make its way back to him. But Rob is known for being a very staunch Republican. He's Mm -hmm. known for being a very strong, you know, conservative values. That's what Rob's known for. And I found it very interesting that yesterday or Saturday, because it's all a blur at this point, he actually had a very long um, post on Facebook talking about the respect that he had for, um, Justice Ginsburg, because mm-hmm. when he was a 23-year-old law clerk, she he went he got to attend a conference that she was at, and she took time afterwards to come to the table he was sitting at, and no one, and ask him questions about what was important to him, why he was here, why he was doing that, and that stuck with him all those years. So when you see people that are so far on the opposite side of being as liberal as she was, mm-hmm. it warms the heart to know, and especially as a female, all the things that are that. I take for granted in my life, there's a lot of things that she stood up for so that we have those things. And it's, it's stuff yep. that some things I hadn't even realized, such as not needing a man to sign off on my credit card or my debit card. Excuse me? I, like, why would I need a man for that? But those are things that used to be in place um, that as a part of, you know, decisions that she was a part of, we can now do those things that we take for granted every single day. Really, an amazing, an amazing person and an amazing life. So, um, I'm, I'm, like you said, I'm glad that we're able to uh, have this discussion today, and and that it makes sense to to talk about it. And um, it's pr- pretty pretty sad. That's for right. sure. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, it, it, one of the ways I just a friend described it, and then I was like, that's actually the feelings I was having, is that I am both 
heartbroken. And this is where I'm in a political and I'm terrified. You know, um, I I'm terrified for who the replacement will be. And it doesn't matter their political affiliation, but it's like we already knew what she stood for. Anytime you bring someone new in to the Supreme Court, um, especially because they are lifetime appointments, which we could get on into a whole subject about <laughs> lifetime appointments. Um, there is just a scariness because people, we change over the course of our lifetimes. Right. So who someone comes in as is not necessarily who they stay at over the course. I mean, we've even seen politicians switch from one political party to the other. So. Well, and, and I think that, you know, one of the reasons why people, people feel that way, Bobby, is because right now, when you really look at the makeup of the court, we have a, um, we have a fairly moderate court at the right. moment. We really do. I mean, there, there's a, there's a level of balance, um, that, that could very easily be brought off kilter. Um, right. and, uh, so, so I, I feel like the, um, I, I understand where people are coming from when they say that uh, there's mm -hmm. a, a, for the Supreme Court, it makes sense to have a, a level of, of moderation and to, to avoid being too far one side over the other. Um, and I feel like that was in large part, um, and again, we're getting more political than we probably meant to, but, yeah. but I feel like in large part, that's, that is uh, the, what people's focus was four years ago was to ensure some level of moderation on the court. And it seems that now we might end up going the other direction on that, um, right. which, it, yep, that's, yeah. that's the world we're in. Yeah. So, um, and I think, you know, that we are getting more political than we intended to with this conversation. And that there will be people on both sides mm -hmm. that have issues with maybe what we're saying. But mm -hmm. from what I know of you and your politics and what I know of me and my politics is that we ride the line down the middle fairly oh, well, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. So you may notice that our tone's a little bit more serious today. And it's because we have a very serious topic um, that we're gonna discuss today. And we're bringing in, I'm so excited for who our guest is today. We are bringing in NAR's Director of Fair Housing Policy. His name is Brian Green. And he's been with NAR for quite some time and just a powerhouse. And what we're going to talk about today is the racial home ownership gap. Um, he's had some articles recently. Um, he has some good quotes with that. And so uh, we thought it'd be really good to talk about him from the National Association's perspective of why the racial home ownership gap exists and what changes can we make. Alex, have you been seeing anything locally or nationally since Black Lives Matter movement um, really got going again a few months ago. Are you seeing anything here that see changes being made? Um, do I, I feel like I see a change in rhetoric um, and a certain level of, um, I, I feel like most of the change that I'm seeing is with words and not necessarily with action. Um, and, but I do feel like there are more educational uh, pieces being offered regarding this topic, and I, I know that that's an important step. So, so I'm not trying to say that we're not doing an, like anything. I mean, it, it just won't ever quite feel like enough until we get beyond this level of denial that that mm -hmm. that people have about whether or not it's a, a real issue. Um, and I, I do believe that we're we've got some educational pieces um, at that are being put to work to hopefully uh, keep that from, from continuing in the future. Um, so, but right now there's, you know, just, just words, education. Right. That's, those are the steps that are being taken at this time. And it just won't ever feel like enough when that's, when that's the meat of it. 
And that's, that's where I'm at. And I get frustrated because I'm a go do person. What can mm -hmm. I do? What can I pick right. up? What can I physically change? And I'm, a, I want to go put my hands yep. physically on something and make a change. Same. And that's, it's not such a simple problem to solve with right. our hands, with our actions, unfortunately. But I will say one of the things that I'm happy with, even though I'm not always happy with the, where the direction that they go is I'm happy conversations are happening because True. it, we've always just been quiet and we just, well, it's not in my world. It doesn't exist. And so even those people that are still the deniers that are saying we don't have racial inequality, we don't have wealth income gaps. Mm -hmm. Those people are outing themselves. However, they're speaking up and then there's the opportunity to educate those people. Now, are we adding educate them and change their minds on Facebook? No, but it's a little bit time over time. So it makes my heart feel a little bit better that we're at least making an effort to have a conversation and we have to start somewhere. So at least we're right. having some of those conversations, even if they're uncomfortable conversations. And I think that's one of the things that I think it comes back to is just like, it's not comfortable to talk about. Well, yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I am white. I have privilege. I have never had to experience these things. I want to, I want to say too, that I, I feel like, um, I think that this is still unfortunately the case. There, there's a large group of people who would acknowledge those things, the things that mm -hmm. you just said, I am, I'm white, I have privilege, et cetera. Um, but they do not feel, they, they are convinced that doing so is unsafe. And they and they're convinced that they are, you know, saying I'm a bad person. And that's not that's not what you're saying when you're saying those things. Right. That is, that's not not you know you're not you're not saying what's in your heart. You're right. you're uh, you're expressing the reality of system of systemic racism. I mean that's that's the deal. And and it's not it's not any individual's fault. But unfortunately, people take it so personally. Mm -hmm. And um, and. I, I feel like, you know, because there are more people coming out and saying things like what you just said, I, I am, I'm white, I have privilege, because people are being more outward about that expression. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's normalizing it in a way that makes people feel more comfortable to acknowledge it in a way that makes them, in a way that doesn't make them feel um, unsafe from ridicule or reprimand. You know, in in a way that encourages them to look at this in a way that can advance their thoughts and advance the thoughts of uh, their sphere and the people that are around them. And so I'm, I I am optimistic for the same reasons you are. I just I, I think we're getting to that point where we can start to see some systemic change. That's my hope. Yeah, and I am too. And there's there's a some reason this conversation made me think of a Mark Twain quote. I'm going to read it word for word so I don't mess it up. Um, that gives me hope for the future of ways that we can change. And the Mark Quaintote is, quote, is, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on those accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Hmm. And what I love about that quote is, I think one of the reasons why I have an expanded view of the world is I've done a lot of, I lived in Mexico for a summer in college. Like if you don't have to learn how to break down some barriers right then and there, you're in for a world That's of right. hurt. And a, a lot of the people that I see that say they don't see these things exist or they don't recognize problems or they have their own bigotry, they've traveled very little. They've stayed in a small circle. I mean, 
I your life experience that, truly doesn't lend itself to that to that world thought. I mean, I know people that have never left the state of Missouri. Right. And they are 40, 50 years old. And the, the idea that they've not traveled inside outside of their own town, sure. essentially, how can you have a worldview? How can you understand what goes on in the rest of the world if you've never gone and seen it? Yeah. And often it's not that person's fault that they haven't yeah. been able to travel. I and mean, that, you know, that's the issue yeah. that we get into. Yeah. There's also a certain level of privilege uh, in that we're able to have that level of, of uh, you know, well, worldview is the, it, it, we're able to have that level of experience. And it, I mean, that, that's a level of privilege as well. It is a, hey, one thing that uh, you just said, and um, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to like ruin our serious tone or anything, but you also said quote, um, when referring to a Mark Twain quote, I made I up a new word. you said it accidentally, but I, it's a brilliant new word. I mean, I think that if you're quoting Mark Twain, you can just call mm -hmm. it a quote. It's a quote. Well, speaking of Mark Twain, who's an author. It was author, a great quote, by the way. It was a great, who had a great quote. No, I'm just going to talk like that. Um, who had a great quote. He was also an author. And do you know what authors write? Authors write books. <gasps> do, 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 Bobby's book bit. Casey. In our next episode, I'm going to talk about how we did get a little Casey rare going on last week. I think you all will appreciate that story. But my book bit, um, I felt Does it involve tied. A cat? Yeah, we were a cat. It had to be, you're going to know. You're going to bring it up. Um, so I felt this was an appropriate book bit for the topic that we were going with today. So I chose Michelle Obama's Becoming. Um, if you've not read the book, it's Michelle Obama's life story, and it motivates you to move forward with your dreams, regardless of your circumstances, criticism, or what people think is normal. We've been kind of talking about that already, what people already think is normal, and we pass judgment on each other. My quote from the book is, my favorite quote is, now, I think it's one of the most useless questions an adult can ask a child. What do you want to be when you grow up? As if growing up is finite. As if at some point you become something and that's the end. And it's so mm. true. We never stop growing. We never stop learning. We never stop yeah. becoming who we are. So there are three life lessons. As There's many life lessons in the book, but I had to obviously pick out three. The first life lesson is... Regardless of the changes in your world, you can strive to be your best and learn. To be proactive about learning and getting a good education, regardless of how good or bad things are around you. So Michelle grew up on the south side of Chicago, and there was a big demographics change in the south side of Chicago between the 1950s and the 1980s. In the 1950s, its residents were 96% white, and by the 1980s, 96% of the residents were black. And so as she grew up, there was an increasing number of wealthier neighbors that were moving to the suburbs and taking their money with them. And because of this, the schools and the businesses in the area began declining. And she talks about in the book that it wasn't be long before real estate agents started um, dubbing the area as a ghetto. Hmm. You want to kill off an area, but it was real estate agents who were doing this and pushing mm -hmm. this forward. So I thought it was very appropriate for us and what mm -hmm. we're doing here. In second grade, she told her mom how awful her school was, that her teacher could not control the chaos of the classroom. And Michelle was actually able to test up and go into third grade with a group of very high-performing kids. And this was a huge step in her success later on because she was able to get away from the chaos. She was able to create her own change despite yeah. her circumstances. Um, the second lesson is, 
Don't let people's opinions of you discourage you. Try for greatness and you will eventually find the people who believe in you. Um, and ignore people who tell you what they think you can't be. Pushing yourself to excel can lead to meeting people who do believe in your potential. We all need those people in our lives that believe in us no matter what's going on. Um, she tells the story that she had a meeting with her college counselor who said, I'm not sure you're Princeton material. Well, she already had an older brother that was at um, Princeton. And um, this advisor just wanted her just to lower her, her, her sights and what she mm -hmm. could possibly do. And she didn't let it get her down. She applied, she got in. So sometimes you need to ignore the people who should be giving you the best advice to just go with your gut and shoot for the moon. Um, Michelle learned quickly doing so can lead you to people who truly believe in your ability and the things you can accomplish. And the third lesson was don't fear using your strengths and ideas to try and improve the world, no matter how prestigious of a position you may be in. After a few years, uh, Princeton, Michelle went on to study at Harvard and then she moved back to work at a law firm in Chicago, which is where she met Mr. Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And to talk about how different their world was when they moved into the White House. They could no longer just go on a date night. There was security surrounding them and everything like that and just how much their world changed during that time. But she still wanted to be who she was at her core. And being a mom was really, really important to her. So she taught the girls that the White House actually was their home and they could play and grab food and go into the pantry anytime they wanted to because even though it was the White House, it was their home. And she also started a garden and she worked on initiatives to improve school lunches across the nation. We all know about that. Um, that drive that helped her succeed in school and help other people shone through. She worked to improve the world in whatever way she could, even though the position her family was in made some aspects of her life a little more challenging. It's not just so easy just being up on a pedestal. Sometimes you're not allowed to do all the things you would want to do as a private citizen. So that's Becoming by Michelle Obama. There are so many other life lessons, so many great stories she tells that I cannot recommend it highly enough. Awesome, and I Bobby. think good book bit. I thank you. It's because I'm awesome. awesome. Um, but I think our guest is in the waiting room, and we probably ought to bring him on. Oh, let's do it. All right, we'll be back with Brian Green, NAR's director of Fair Housing Policy. Habitat for Humanity of Kansas City has been a partner of KCRARs for years. You've probably heard about the work they're doing to help provide strength, stability, self-reliance, and shelter for the community. But did you know they also run a secondhand store that benefits their organization? The Habitat for Humanity Restore sells household items from furniture to appliances to building materials like cabinets, doors, windows, and more. All the proceeds from Restore Sales support Habitat for Humanity's mission to make sure everyone in the world has a decent place to live. There are three main ways you can support Restore and Habitat for Humanity of Kansas City. Donating, volunteering, and shopping. If you have a client who's remodeling or fixing up their home to sell, suggest they donate any unneeded items to Restore so they can be used to raise money for Habitat. Or, if they're looking for second-hand items, Shopping at the ReStore not only supports our community, but also supports building affordable housing around the world. So if you want to learn more about how to donate and volunteer or where you can shop, you can visit habitat.org slash restores, R-E-S-T-O-R-E-S. 
Welcome back to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRAR. Bobby and I are here now with Brian Green, the NAR Director of Fair Housing. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. Absolutely. We're excited to have you, not really in Kansas City, but if you do come to Kansas City, we're going to take you off for some good barbecue. Just All right, Bobby. laying it out there. Forward to it. The invite's Brian, out there. tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, uh, I am here in my house. Uh, where I have been working for, uh, I guess now, six months. Um, I've actually, <laughs> I've actually worked from my house longer than I have worked uh, uh, in NAR's offices. Um, I joined NAR in November, and of course, um, with the pandemic, um, we left our offices in March. And so, uh, <laughs> it's been very interesting uh, doing um, presentations to associations throughout the country on fair housing largely by zoom yeah yeah i believe it i believe it so where where is your home so i'm in washington dc okay and that's where uh nar's advocacy team is uh here in washington so we uh are in a building that overlooks the u.s capitol so uh awesome. if, if our advocacy falls short we can actually shout <laughs> I like, you know, I like actually, I haven't visited the building. <laughs> the, the, uh, NAR or the Capitol? The NAR's building. NAR's building. I've been in the Capitol yeah. multiple times, but never, never the uh, realtor building. It's a beautiful building. It, it, it. it kind of resembles a ship. Yeah. And I, some days when there's a strong wind, I imagine us, you know, just unmooring and start sailing down New Jersey Avenue. <laughs> I look forward to visiting sometime when we can travel to DC again. Yes, yeah. and I would love to visit you guys. Yes, Alex, you need to visit the building. It's gorgeous. You go out on the patio and you can overlook the Capitol. It's beautiful. We did we did really well in that location. Um, <laughs> so, Brian, it's been a couple. We've actually had a couple of senators on our podcast over the last few months, but it's been a couple of months since we've talked to someone from DC. What's the mood in DC? Right, this isn't the topic we brought you on, but while we have you, it's captive audience. Um, what's the mood like in DC right now? I mean, we're flyover country. We got our own mood going on here, but what's going on in <laughs> DC? So, well, uh, most immediately and, and uh, today, or I'd say the last couple of days, people have been mourning the passage, the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and so uh, I, I think that right now kind of dominates the mood here. And you know, if you've seen. Uh, the news, you know, there are memorials for her um, by the Supreme Court and, and elsewhere in, in the city. Um, and so, um, so that dominates. Now, the, the other thing, of course, is we're, we're largely home, right? And we're not really socializing with people. And so you really only know the mood insofar as you're, you know, picking up the phone and talking to other people. I did see people at, at a socially distanced uh, Rosh Hashanah picnic this weekend. And most people were talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, Brian, we do want to be respectful of your time. And oh, we yes. did bring you on to speak about a very important topic today. So we want to talk about the racial homeownership gap. Um, the Black Lives Movement's caused a lot of people to start paying more attention to racial inequities. I would say it's about time, but it was not even enough that we've done yet. Um, how do you think this is affecting the real estate industry? Uh, well, I, I think, the real estate industry is looking inward. Um, 
you know, NAR's membership's 1.4 million people. And so in many respects, I think our concerns reflect the concerns of, of many Americans. And so uh, everyone's having these conversations and thinking about um, the impact that race or racial inequity has had on wealth um, gaps in the country. And I think for those of us in, in the real estate world, um, we're acutely aware that real estate is how most families gain wealth. And um, it is also how most families have passed down intergenerational wealth. Um, I was talking at this picnic I was at uh, with a fellow who, he may be a member of a local association, but he's not principally uh, you know, a realtor um, or, or a real estate professional, he's a lawyer. And, you know, he was just saying just how he and others have begun to reflect of how cavalierly sometimes um, agents or others, you know, when they're talking to folks about making a down payment, you know, will say, well, you know, you have, you know, family member who give you, you know, $50,000 uh, to help you make the down payment and just how divorced that is from um, the circumstances of, of many minority people, I mean, many Americans, but certainly many minorities, um, you know, who may not have um, that track record in their family. So I think we're, we're you know, I think people are, are just doing the research, doing the investigation to better understand, you know, uh, the society that we have today and a recognition that it is very segregated and it didn't get that way by accident. And that, that has wealth ramifications. Um, you know, for the present day uh, and for future generations. Yeah. You know, Brian, one of the things that you hear people say when, when these discussions are happening, you know, at, at, least, there's, at least there's progress. Um, but earlier this year, you were quoted in an NAR article that pointed out that the homeownership gap uh, between white and black Americans has actually gotten worse, not better. Um, in the last 50 years. Can you just talk a little bit about that and, and explain the data to us? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, I would have to look at it in detail, but certainly we know that um, last year the um, home ownership rate for African Americans specifically had dipped uh, below where it was in 1968 um, when we passed the Fair Housing Act in order to. Um, you know, make sure everyone has equal access. And I, um, I believe the gap has widened just because, you know, white Americans have increased their rate. And so if, you know, it's more or less stagnant for African Americans, that means we have a wider gap. Um, you know, uh, this has been a case of steps, some number of steps forward and, and some number of steps back, uh, and may, maybe sometimes more steps back than forward at times because, um, you know, as recently as the uh, recession in, in 2008 or so, 2006, 2007, uh, 2007 um, we saw uh, many who had owned homes, um, including many who had owned homes without, you know, straight out, uh, you know, fall prey to uh, home improvement scams, fall prey to uh, predatory refinance scams, and lose um, those homes. And we know, we know that many of the communities um, of color were, were targeted. Uh, I come from 
New York City and uh, Queens and, and some areas of Brooklyn, which are residential neighborhoods, middle-class neighborhoods that uh, uh, are predominantly African-American. And I can tell you the whole history of how white flight changed that. But, you know, these are, mo you know, modest middle-class communities, folks who, who, you know, had home ownership for 30, 40 years, lost them um, during that crisis because they fell prey to some scams, uh, often like, you know, perpetuated through their churches and other places. Um, so awful stuff happened in many, many, metro, many cities uh, nationwide that uh, set us back. So you have this, you know, progress, but then these setbacks. You know, Brian, when I was reading The Color of Law, um, when it got to the part that talked about the predatory lending practices, specifically targeting minority communities in 2008, 2009, it was very eye-opening. I mean, the whole book was eye-opening, let's be honest. But it's like when we start thinking about segregation and discrimination, our white brains tend to go so far back, and we don't realize all the things that are still happening in day-to-day -day life, in 2020 life. Um, I even told the story on a, another podcast we had that we have a realtor that reached out to me, one of our local realtors. She wrote uh, to me that when she got licensed in 1997, which was not that long ago, the uh, big box brokerage that she had joined um, told, and she's a, a black, beautiful black woman who said she was only allowed to sell um, west of this area and south of this area and price range beneath that in 1997. And she stayed for a while because that's how it was. And then she realized this is not how it is. And she went and started her own brokerage. We're hearing a lot of those stories. Yeah. So what are some of the effects of the outright discrimination we had back then? What are some of the effects we're still seeing today? And what are some of the other outright discriminatory practices that you're still seeing today? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, just hearing that story, just people are still kind of lumping folks in categories and, uh, and not even aware sometimes uh, how they're perpetuating these things. I, you know, I, I actually recently said it really bothers me sometimes to go into um, a clothing store like uh, Brooks Brothers and where they have uh, people of different backgrounds, you know, serving you. And it sometimes feels as if they've made an arrangement where uh, the black sales folks, you know, approach the black people. <laughs> you know, and it feels like it's, it's like, you know, is this like segregation even in terms of service here? And I think, you know, the same thing happens in, in some companies in the real estate industry, and that's not good, and especially if we're a segregated society and, you know, the, the home values in certain communities are, are more depressed. Um, that's denying agents opportunity. So, we, so, we, so I would say that our, our segregated history, you know, um, influences uh, these kinds of decisions and, and plans today. I think, you know, people are still typecast um, too often when they walk into, um, when they walk into uh, a, a company's offices. I saw a Facebook uh, video recently that an agent posted where, an African-American agent posted where he was suggesting that um, a, partic a, a white agent had assumed his client um, had FHA financing. And, you know, this was at like uh, an open house where there were a lot of people online to go in and, and uh, he alleges that the agents came up and said to them, hey, we're, we're not doing FHA on this one. Um, so making assumptions uh, about, by, and these apparently were, were African-American investors, you know, uh, not FHA folks. 
Uh, and, you know, it actually makes me think of even that Starbucks incident where some fellows who mm-hmm. I think they were in real estate were, were meeting a white friend uh, in Starbucks and they wanted to use the bathroom and uh, they were told they couldn't sit there and wait um, for their friend. Um, but again, you know, business people who are being treated uh, like they are, you know, whatever, you know, not, but, but not, not persons who uh, belong in a particular space. And so that's just happening a lot. And I think if you have those kind of attitudes, they sort of influence um, people even unconsciously. Um, in terms of other practices, um, appraisals. Um, I'm, uh, I think many people saw the New York Times story recently about an African-American woman married to a white man. They uh, went to refinance their home. They expected their appraisal would come in between 350 and 550,000. Uh, it came in low at 330. Uh, the African-American woman suspected uh, race may have had something to do with it. And she, um, and the, you know, she had the bank reorder the appraisal. She removed from the home uh, all indications that an African-American lived there, like mm-hmm. pictures and books. And she and her son removed themselves to the mall um, for the reappraisal. And then that reappraisal came in at $465,135,000 difference, 40% difference. Uh, And this apparently goes on. Uh, Andre Perry of the Brookings Institution has done a report about this. It says even when you've controlled for all legitimate factors, uh, they estimate that about 25% of the appraisal difference um, appears to be related to either the race of the home occupant uh, or the demographics of the neighborhood after you've controlled for everything else. So all of these issues wow. seem to still, you know, it's hard to legislate that out, um, but they reflect sort of how we live as a society. Yeah. You know, they, you know, Brian, so we had on a, a, a one of our members, or not actually one, one, multiple of our members have reported to us uh, our black members have reported that when there's an appraisal happening, they will often send a white agent to the house, that that's who the appraiser's meeting with, that that's who the appraiser thinks the real estate agent is because they've had so many houses under appraise. I have another friend who lives in Chicago. She's not a realtor. She's just a regular human being. And she says that whenever she has um, repairmen come to the house to give her bids, she will have a, a white friend come stand at her house because either they will show up and not give a bid or they will bid seven times too high. But that if a white friend is there acting like they're the homeowner, she gets a fair and accurate bid. And I just, in 2020, I just can't wrap my brain around that that's how we still live. And yet, we just had our state real estate meetings last week. They were all online. And as a part of our mission and thing this year, um, our president wants us before every committee meeting to have a discussion about diversity and inclusion. How can we affect this committee with greater diversity, greater inclusion? How can we affect our association with greater diversity, greater inclusion? How can we include more people? And the number of conversations we had around us versus them was just astonishing to me. That's what I kept hearing, us, them. It's not us versus them. We are all an us. We are all a people. And why do we keep using words, divisive words, just us versus them is divisive in and of itself. Right. I just, I don't yeah. know. Well, you know, what you describe, uh, you know, sounds like what you hear in a lot of, you know, other social circumstances. And I, I bring in social circumstances because there, there really is no, you know, sharp dividing line 
<clears throat> in the professional sphere versus how we, we live socially. I have an African-American friend from college who I was talking to her recently and she was somehow in the conversation, she was just talking about how when um, contractors come to the house, um, she has her white husband deal, deal with them. And she, she described it as, you know, uh, white guy negotiations because she feels as a woman and as an African-American, uh, they treat her differently and that it's easier for her husband to push back and negotiate uh, and have that respected <clears throat> than, than her. And, you know, said it kind of flippantly, but <clears throat> uh, we, there's no reason to expect that um, those issues, um, you know, disappear <laughs> when suddenly it's in a real estate transaction. Yeah. You know, certainly with some of the things that we're talking about uh, in this conversation, uh, you know, we're talking about um, systemic issues uh, that have been around for a long time and systemic issues that still exist to this day. Um, you know, what, what are some things that we can be doing um, as realtors to ensure or to, to do our best to make sure that our industry can help right some of the wrongs that it created uh, in the last, you know, 100 years, 110, 120 years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, well, I think many are doing the things um, that are necessary for step. And so I mentioned uh, people educating themselves. Uh, almost everyone, or at least everyone I end up talking to, <laughs> seems to be reading Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, educating themselves on the history. And I think that's really key. Uh, otherwise, you, you go around, you know, saying these things or, you know, presenting these false examples, these false narratives um, that aren't informed. So I think that's really important. Um, and then, you know, we at NAR are focusing on many ways in which bias still shows itself today. Um, one of those ways is uh, unconsciously. And so recognizing that, um, you know, as I said, we bring in bias from the social space into the real estate transactions. So we have done uh, what's called implicit bias training. Uh, and we're really sort of in, in the midst of it. We've posted on our, uh, our webpage an introduction to it and sort of an overview of it, mm -hmm. which is a, a video that's 50 minutes long, which helps you see how uh, it enters in, you know, all these different professional spheres and um, how there are ways to combat it. You're not gonna overcome it in watching a 50 minute video. And so we have um, contracted with this company, the Perception Institute, to do a three hour course that we're making available to companies and that we hope we can uh, obtain continuing education credit for so that it can reach um, as many of our members as possible um, and, you know, there, we wanted to reach those people who might not otherwise uh, sign up for it. So, um, so we're exploring how we do that. And then, of course, you know, accountability at the end of the day uh, is necessary. I mean, there are laws that have prohibited these practices for 52 years, whether you intend it or not. So, so we have to do that. Um, but then uh, I would say uh, real estate agents ought to get involved in their community. Um, you know, when we talk about what we learn in a book like The Color of Law, um, there are uh, governmental obligations 
to help overcome some of these things. Uh, cities get uh, community development block grant money. Uh, there are obligations um, when you get that money that have been in place for 52 years. Uh, we have uh, commented to HUD that it needs a strong regulation um, directing uh, communities to look at uh, historic segregation. That's been the law for uh, decades and, and HUD had put out a rule to weaken those obligations. And we said, no, you know, you, you really need to do this because um, it really leaves money on the table for, for our industry to have a segregated society and artificial um, markets, like different markets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, many people just don't appreciate that, that, you know, this isn't just about uh, African-Americans, you know, gaining access or Hispanics gaining access to neighborhoods from which they've been excluded. Um, there's plenty of data and studies that show the overall uh, GDP of metro areas increase when they're less segregated. Mm -hmm. uh, and that these, you know, uh, that integration um, presents benefits for uh, everyone in a community. So, so we've commented on, on rules like that, but there are ways that you can get involved locally, you know, when your community is applying for federal funds, when they're doing these consolidated plans, um, to begin planning in ways that recognize the history and, and uh, start to dismantle it. Yeah. You know, Brian, you talked about everybody's reading Color of Law right now. Everybody wants to talk about everybody's reading it. I first read it like three and a half years ago. I started telling everybody they needed to read it, but no one listened to me until now. And everybody's like, this is the greatest book. And I was like, <laughs> I told you three years ago to go read this book. But, you know, what do I know? Um, we actually talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg on our intro. You brought her up. She has a fabulous quote that says, if you're neutral in situations of social injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressors. And I think too often people just think if I stay silent, I haven't taken a side, but I don't, I don't agree with that. But yet when you don't speak up, when you don't do something, you basically have said, I don't support you. Alex and I are action people. We don't like to just say words. That's one of the reasons, you know, like around the whole, like, I think it's great if we're going to change master suite or not, but they're just words. We'd rather have actions. What are some actions that our members, Alex and I, the National Association, that we can physically take or not, it probably starts with words, to help close the racial homeownership gap. Where do we start? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned, you know, the master suite thing too, because uh, I'll just say as someone who worked at HUD for 29 years enforcing the Fair Housing Act, uh, at HUD and at Department of Justice, uh, we never really gave any, uh, attention to those words because they, they don't keep anyone out of housing. Uh, and it's fine if people believe today that uh, they mean something different than what I believe was the intent of those words, but that's not really changing anything. Um, I know people are also concerned with restrictive covenants. I, I hear people um, throughout the country talking about um, these invalid covenants. I don't want to be insensitive to those concerns, but honestly, um, they don't keep people out of housing today. I'm sitting here in a house that's 120 years old that um, surely has a covenant. It never comes up. It doesn't deny me housing. Uh, and Richard Rothstein, my, who's a friend of mine, you know, said that, but for that history, we wouldn't really know what we're combating today. And so there may be a way to address 
people's concerns about those things without um, completely erasing that history. Um, but we should also acknowledge that changing them, uh, if that's a state measure, does not really introduce a single person to a new housing unit. Right. Um, and so um, I think a couple of things, I mean, we're doing a whole raft of things at NAR to help ensure that we don't discriminate today. Um, you know, and we're, we're doing that in terms of training, we're doing that in terms of promoting culture change among the industry, um, with videos, uh, other things, some research that we're doing to better understand what motivates discrimination today so we can do those interventions better and you know, promoting changes in state licensing laws so that when people do discriminate, there's actually some consequence. Testing is one of the number one uh, tools we need to uncover discrimination when it occurs. occurs. We don't want to see it in our profession, but we won't know necessarily unless we have evidence of how people treat um, folks of different backgrounds. Uh, minorities are not necessarily going to come forward and complain if they aren't aware that other people were treated better. And so the government really needs to do more in terms of testing. We're talking about a self-testing program so that companies can look at this. Companies, you know, they do quality assurance on all manner of things. This should concern them. So, so, but that's just, you know, do no harm today. Uh, we also need to support policy that redresses harm, um, that looks at, you know, I think Alex mentioned systemic racism, the, the things that through policy um, still maintain segregation or, or inequality um, and address those things. Almost every city in America has some kind of geographical barrier uh, sometimes it's a highway, sometimes it's literally uh, the railroad tracks that separate communities and define communities. Um, we need to examine those things and see how they affect how, where and how we live. Um, and so those are the kind of community measures people can, t can take. Um, but really the examination is the first step um, to taking that kind of action. I see there are communities like uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and others that are looking at how urban renewal um, divested many people of their wealth. Um, so these were city actions that denied people harm and city actions within our lifetimes <laughs> that harmed people. And so we can look at some of those things in our community and see how do we redress what's happened. Um, and then there's a whole raft of things we can do in, in, in the banking sphere too. There's a woman named Mirsa Baradaran who wrote a book called The Color of Money, uh, where she talks about some of the, the more affirmative steps we can take to redress uh, the harm. So engaging, reading, uh, and um, you know, doing no harm today, all are gonna be necessary. Brian, thank you so much for being with us today. You know, Bobby and I have had, like Bobby mentioned, we, we've had this conversation, uh, not, not exactly this one, but conversations surrounding this issue multiple times over the, over the summer and now into the fall. And every time I feel like I come away with, with a, a new bit that, that kind of helps me frame this um, in, in a way that, I feel like I can help to make change within the industry. Yes. Like I, I, in, in listening and trying to, to help others uh, hear the stories that I hear since, you know, frequently, otherwise they, they never hear them. Um, it's been so beneficial. Each of these conversations has been, and, and this has been no different. For me, the, the most striking thing is, is certainly the idea that 
um, that black homeownership has has been stagnant in the last you know 60 years that that's that's unbelievable to me um and i i think that it's one of those things that if if more people just thought about that like take take all of the rhetoric off of the table and just hear these facts i feel like people would be moved to more firmly push a, a change and and try to address these things um, and, and try to seek justice, not just, you know, equality or, or equity, but, but justice in homeownership. Yeah. Um, and so th- thank you so much for being here with us today. And um, we hope to have you, have you back in, again. Uh, it's just super valuable conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, to both you, Alex, and Bobby. It was a pleasure. Thank you.